0: Before we begin then, let us all take a moment to bring our palms together in veneration of the fully awakened one, the undefeated one, the infinitely merciful one, the compassionate one, he who is unblemished in character and whose wisdom, compassion and loving-kindness no, No Bounds, He is our master, our guide, our teacher. He is the epitome of perfection. It is He whose path, whose footsteps have been tread right from when our forefathers embarked on this journey. And today, the journey continues as all of us as disciples, continue to lay down our footsteps in that path, on that path, on the path to deliverance, the path to freedom, the path to emancipation, the path to Nibbana. We also renew our pledge of allegiance to the noble Triple Jinn and commit ourselves fully, wholeheartedly to this noble path. So let us all take a moment to do that now. Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Sama Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Sama Sambuddhassa Namo bhagavato arahato samma We have wondered why we call the Buddha the merciful one. Why do we call him the merciful one? Think about this. There's a saying, isn't there? It takes one to know one. You've heard that? It takes one to know one. Normally, it is a. Uh, it's used uh, to kind of mock people, but even in matters of goodness and greatness, it can be used. So, it takes one to know one. If you are beginning to understand why the Buddha is merciful, then you are beginning to become merciful. There is no other way you can actually assess or gauge or fathom the Buddha's mercifulness. Now there are mothers in the room, aren't there? We have mothers in the audience you remember when you were young, just as a child? Do you remember how your mother used to treat you? How if she would look after you? How she would make every sacrifice on your behalf? She'd say she loves you. She'd say that. But did you really understand what she meant by that until you became a mother yourself? I asked the mothers in the audience. Of course not. It is only once you become a mother, you know what motherhood is all about. The sacrifices that you have to make, and how you have to step outside all of your comfort zones, and how you have to not think twice about doing whatever is needed to do good for your child. So therefore, Unless you become a mother, unless you are a mother, you don't really know what it means to be a mother. So it takes one to know one. And the same goes for being a father. The sacrifices a father has to make on behalf of his children. Sometimes, you know, I remember giving speeches. You know, we've all done that. Today I'm here to talk about my mother. And then we normally start by saying, my mother loves me very much. How little we knew about this. Although we come on stage, we, you know, and speak to an audience and say, "I, my mother loves me. My father loves me. Did we really understand what that meant until we had the opportunity to become a mother or become a father? Because it takes one takes one to know one. On the other hand, hardship is the same. Sometimes we sympathize with people, don't we? And sometimes people can even get offended by that, when we sympathize with them. Someone comes and says, I've lost a loved one. And then you get a response normally, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Now in modern times, with all this political correctness, for good or for worse, people say don't say that, don't say that, you're sorry, if you don't know what that means. If you've not been in that situation, then how can you know what it feels? <clears throat> so, as particularly, if you respond by saying, I can imagine what that feels like. Oh, I know how that feels. And people normally say, don't say that, because it's, people can get offended. I don't, I don't know what, what's right or wrong there because all we're doing is really sharing in their grief and supporting them. So I don't necessarily subscribe to that idea. But what people say is it's better to empathize than to sympathize. So you don't say that you know what that feels like, but instead you say, if you need anything or anyone to talk to at any point, just let me know and I'm here, I will do what, my, what I can. I will do my best to share in your grief. So again, it takes one to know one. That's why they say that. If someone says, I've got a cancer, then the response to that, if you've not had a cancer ever in your life, then it is considered, how can you know what that feels like? So, it takes one to know one. So when we think of the Buddha as the merciful one, see, this is why we call him the one. You know, there's a a reason behind that, the compassionate, One. There's there's only one. Why do we call him the One? Aren't there there others? (laughs) Have you not heard of the merciful pair? The infinitely compassionate duo? No? Why do we call him the One? Preceded by various adjectives, various epithets. We call him the one because he's the fountain. And we don't just say that because he's our religious teacher. We don't say that just because we follow his philosophy. We call him the fully awakened one. We call him the infinitely compassionate one, the all-knowing one, the omniscient one. See, behind all of these epithets, you have, the, it is followed by the word, one. Aren't there are others who are compassionate? Wasn't your mother compassionate towards you? What do you think? Wasn't she? But you don't call her the compassionate one, do you? I'm here to talk about my mother, and she's the compassionate one. You don't say that. I can. Can you? We don't normally say, I'm here to talk about my father, and, I'm the, and he's the compassionate one. I don't know about you, but I can. So why do we call him the one? We call him the one, ladies and gentlemen, because there is no one who can be compared with that degree of compassion. I mean, what can you compare with infinity? You can compare two with two. You can compare three with two. You can compare one with two, so it's either bigger, or lesser, greater, or equal. But when you have infinity, what can you compare with infinity other than infinity itself? Because infinity minus one is the same as infinity plus one. It's the same as infinity plus or minus zero. Infinity is infinity. So when you have something that is infinite in something, they become the one. It is the source of all of it. And as I said, we don't just say it because he is our religious teacher. We don't just say this because he is a, he's a great philosopher. It's because we understand how he got there. It wasn't by magic, was it? See, when he was fulfilling the perfections, the Parami, the Dasparami, upaparami, and the parami. he was still a Bodhisattva. Whilst he was still a bodhisattva, we wouldn't have called him the one. We wouldn't have called him the compassionate one or the merciful one, the undefeated one. We wouldn't have called him that because he was still defeated, wasn't he? He was defeated by Mara. He hadn't, he hadn't become infinitely victorious. Although he was getting better, there were still defilements within him and there were still battles that he would lose. But one fine day, under that Bodhi tree, on a full moon day, he realized. He awoke, dispelling all the delusions that lay dormant in his mind. Desire, aversion and delusion, blown into smithereens, he woke up. And he realized, he realized the truth about this world. He realized the truth about himself. He realized the truth about everything. And once having realized the truth about everything, now you become compassionate. So what did he do to practice compassion? What did he do to practice loving kindness? What did he do to practice mercy? Yes, they were the perfections, but when did he become the one? sat under the Bodhi tree, was he being compassionate? Was he being kind? Was he being merciful? Or was he reflecting on the Dhamma? I'm trying to help you figure two things really. One, why you believe he is the infinitely merciful one. How do we, how do we understand the Buddha? How do we elevate our mindset from wherever we are now to begin to at least understand, just to begin to understand what the Buddha entails. I'm not talking about the historical figure. I'm not talking about the, the Prince Siddhartha who renunciated his worldly life and went on to become an ascetic and then continued his practice and went on to establish this religion. That's not the figure I'm talking about. I'm talking about a mindset. How did he elevate his mundane mindset to one that was incomparable, unparalleled, and that was through contemplation and realization of the Dhamma. So, see, how does understanding the Dhamma help you become compassionate? We need to figure out the connection between these two things, right? Do You understand the connection between, for instance, eating and sating your hunger. You understand there's a connection between the two. You understand that the connection between drinking, say, water and quenching your thirst. You understand the connection between that. If we begin to feel a bit too hot in here, what are we going to do? What would we normally we'll do? Switch on the fans, maybe? Open the windows? Yeah? Or maybe turn down the AC? Because we see the connection between room temperature and how we feel. So we see the connection. We see the connection between learning, education and getting ourselves a good job, starting off on a good career, getting ourselves to a decent profession. Yeah, we see the connection between that. We see the connection between saving some money and then getting some interest. Do you see the connection between contemplating the Dhamma? And becoming the one. How did Neo become the one? Ignore that. For some of you you will be, what? Who, who's Neo? So just ignore that. What is the connection between contemplating the Dhamma and becoming compassionate? You know, for all you know, the Buddha was under the Bodhi tree. He was reflecting on the Dham. For so many days, for so many weeks, he was contemplating on the Dham. In fact, even as an ascetic, he isolated himself, didn't he? See, initially he went and spent time with the five ascetics. Kondanya, Vappa, Maanam and Asaji. These were the five ascetics he spent a lot of his time with after he left his worldly life. But after a while, you know, they couldn't get along with each other. So he was very strenuous in his practice, but eventually he decided, "Mm, this is not working for me. So when he began to give up on that practice, the ascetics came up to him and said, no, you know what, I don't think, we don't think you're serious about this. So I can imagine there would have been a few discussions between the two parties. Yeah, I don't think that was a decision made on one day they would have discussed, they would have debated, they would have argued even. In fact, you know, they would have even tried to encourage the Bodhisattva to change his opinion on that. When he was becoming lax from their perspective on this practice, the, uh, the ascetics would have said, young prince, what are you doing? You're not as strenuous as you used to be. You're not as diligent as you used to be. What's going on? Don't give up now. You're so close. We're here to support you. Let's continue doing this. What is it that I can do to help you? Strive on, they would have asked. But the prince's responses were not forthcoming. He would have continued to say, I don't know, this is just not working for me. For some reason, I'm not feeling less desirous. I'm not feeling like I'm getting any closer to freedom. I don't feel like I've overcome death. I don't feel like I've overcome old age, or fear, or grief. So I don't know about, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm losing my confidence in this practice. So the five ascetics would have intervened. They would have called an intervention. They'll probably have gathered somewhere, you know, just chit-chatting among themselves by the water cooler. I know they didn't have water coolers back then. I said, you know, I think we need to talk to this guy. What's going on? He's he's, he's giving up on his practice. This is not good. And we thought he was going to be the one, they would have said. He was, you know, he was so promising to begin with, but now look at, looks like he's beginning to give up. Were we wrong to think that he was going to be the one? So he would have, they would have second-guessed. And so plenty of times they would have walked up to him and said, you know what, can we have a chat? This is not working out, something's not right. So there would have been a few arguments, well, albeit friendly, I'm sure, but there would have been a few arguments. And so, there came a point where the Bodhisattva decided, you know, this is not working out, so I'm going to leave you guys. You carry on doing what you're doing. I'm going to go and find my own path. This is not working out. So, he let them, they abandoned him, because it wasn't working out. And then he decided, you know, there's no point taking instruction from anyone because all the instructions that have been taken from people, they've only led me so far, I still don't feel like I've overcome death. So what's the point? The very reason I left my palace, and my loving family, my newborn child, and my wife, and my good friend Channa, hmm, when he took me around the kingdom and showed me ailing people, dead people, old people. And I asked him the question, how does one overcome that? And he said, he doesn't have the answer. He said, it cannot be overcome, because if you are born, then you're going to have to go through this, young prince. Sorry to burst your bubble. So he realized, you know, if what I've been doing for the last six years, with the five ascetics, is has not led my understanding, has not Sharpen my wisdom, any more than what it was when I was with Channa, when I was in the palace, then to what avail? To what good has these six years come? Today we realize that he was only paying repentance for some of the sinful deeds of his past. That was just how it was meant to be. He was paying the price. He was not going to become a Buddha until he had paid that price even to become a Buddha, it becomes an obstacle. Then what about mere mortals like you and I? So we have to be very careful. But that's not the point I was trying to make. So he realizes, you know, to I I, I don't feel, I, I feel compassion, but I I, I don't feel like. I'm infinitely compassionate. In fact, if someone would have asked the Bodhisattva at the time, are you the victorious one? He would have said, well, I'm trying. But you know, after becoming the Buddha, someone asked him, are you the victorious one? And he said, no, not. I am the infinitely victorious one, not just any victorious one. It's so funny how the response then from the other person was, oh really? Okay. That must have been my must have been me. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't you, must have been me. And then they carried on. So how does understanding the Dhamma help you become merciful? How does it elevate your mindset from whatever it is now? You know, right now, if you're a parent, you know the feelings and the emotions that you have towards your children. Right? I don't need to spell that out to you. I've never become a biological father, so I don't know what that feels like. But there are the fathers here, there are mothers here. So you know what being a biological mother, a biological father feels like. Right? And you know the devotion that you have towards your children. But you have that towards your children. You have that towards your own children. It wouldn't be right, or even fair, to expect you to have the same commitment, the same love, the same compassion, the the same kindness towards all children. It's unreasonable. Because if you are really a mother in a worldly sense, it is not possible to have the same love towards all. Because then, and there's a reason for that, ladies and gentlemen, nature is like that. You know, a child, when when a child is very young, just an infant, A child needs every protection that it can get from the world outside. Because there are far too many forces acting against it. Remember, natural tendency is to disperse. You have to keep things together. See, soon after we build this place, we have to maintain it. If we don't, if you maintain it, maybe this place will be upstanding for 50 years, 60, 70, maybe 100 years. But what happens if you don't? The place is going to start to fall apart. The, the walls are, start to, are going to start to crumble. The roof is going to start to fall into pieces. And before you know it, this will be flat ground again. So you have to maintain. Just as you have to maintain your bodies. You've only been alive so long because you've been maintaining it. If you hadn't done that, you'd have been long dead. So, it is necessary for a mother, a biological mother, to feel that way towards her child, to feel that my child is one, is everything to me. It is necessary for that. Because remember, a child is a defenseless thing. I'm talking about a young infant. If a mother would actually feel the same about her child as as she feels, or if she felt the same about every child, or every human being, as she feels about her child, then there's very little chance that that child is going to survive. Do you remember the story of that arahant, where the arahant's ex-wife, she bore a child, and then she brought the child, and she, she was looking for the child's father. By that point, he had left his worldly life, and he'd gone on to become a monk, and then become an arahant. Right? So the mother's looking for this child's father. She feels that she she had been betrayed, she feels like she'd been abandoned, she feels like she's now having to look after the child all by herself and that doesn't seem fair, so she's looking for the child's father. So she goes looking around and she finds the father. Doing what? In meditation. Is that what fathers do? What are you <laughs> feel <Ravka's> doing anyway? <laughs> Is this what a father does? Go home. So, she brings, she brings the child, and she lays it down in front of, just by the side of the Arahant. The Arahant is in meditation. This is the biological father of the child. So, of course, the Arahant hears the child wailing, whining, next to him. But, he observes it, and he looks to see if the mother is around. No way to be seen. He gets up, and he walks away. Where is the compassion? I ask you. Where is the mercy? Where is the loving kindness? So often people ask why did an Arahant behave in that manner? Is it right of an Arahant to, to do so? Where is the compassion? Where is the loving kindness? Where is the, where is the mercy? The arahant realizes that in this moment, there is nothing that I as an arahant can give this child. I can't free this child from suffering. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the point, why is it that after an arahant becomes an arahant, they still go around preaching the Dhamma, they still sacrifice themselves. I mean, it's a different kind of sacrifice by that point. They're even willing to let go of their life faculty to continue the fight against terrorism what terrorism yes the terrorism of fear the terrorism of grief they continue the fight against terrorism they continue the fight against jati because jati is still there it still prevails although jati has been extinguished in one mind you know there are plenty of others around so to him it matters not whose jati has been has been dealt with whose jati has been exterminated jati is still there in war, you know, you have the enemy forces. Like right? the enemy soldiers, they come fighting. They come, you know, with their weapons. And now each and every one of you, you are fighting your own enemy. And if once you have slaughtered your enemy, what do you do? Or do you say job done and you turn around and go back home? No, you pick on the next one, right? That's the way, that's the way, you know, that's how, that's how battles work. Just because you've killed the enemy in front of you, doesn't mean your, your game is done. The war is done. You have to just keep on fighting until the last enemy has been slain. It's like yeah, it's all one war, exactly. So that is how the Arahant sees the world. It's all one, one fight against one enemy. So anyhow, this, this Arahant, he, he gets up and he leaves because he realizes there's nothing I can do. And here he must have, I'm, I'm sure he must have figured, you know, this, this child was not here when I got here, so... Someone's, someone's at it. <laughs> I mean, he's not, he's not an idiot. The other realizes something's going on here. Yeah, I'm sure what this, I'm, I have, a, I have a very good idea how this child landed here. And therefore, I needn't worry about the well-being of this child, because the same way it he got here, it's going to get out of here. He's not an idiot, he understands things. So, at this point, the arahant wakes up and leaves. But, you know, where's the compassion, you might ask? So, this is a very different thing. But the mother, on the other hand, who had not become an arahant, who was still very much a worldly being, she had such devotion towards a child, this is why even she was going around looking for a father for her child. So, it is, it is only natural that a mother, if you've ever been a mother, You feel that special connection towards your child. It is nature's way of providing protection for that child. You know how many times you might have even committed sinful deeds on behalf of your child, or on behalf of your children. Mothers, you can look down now. You know what I'm talking about. Fathers, the same. You're willing to do whatever it takes. If you have to kill, you will kill. If you have to steal, you will steal. If you have to lie, you will lie. Until, of course, you listen to the Dhamma and begin to understand that this is just a gathering, a very temporary gathering. We're only here for the night. When the night is done, and when the night is done, we all leave and, you know, it's, not, it's, it's like none of us never ever, got to, ever knew anyone. They never knew each other, right? So that's how you feel after you begin to understand the Dhamma. But until such time, nature ensures that you are there to protect your child at whatever cost. So what I'm trying to get to is, as parents, you understand how you feel that emotional bond, that emotional connection, that sacrifice you're willing to make on behalf of your child. How does that compare to the Buddha? If the Buddha is a merciful one, then he is the source of all mercy. You have love and compassion towards your child, but that is not based in the Dhamma. It is a very selfish kind of love. Because it is selfish, isn't it? What ish? It is selfish. So you need the self for that to work. Not selfish, <laughs> <laughs> but it is all very self-based. Whereas the Buddha's love and his compassion and his mercy is not self-based, it's selfless. There is no self there. Self has no part to play in that, in that drama. They have no agenda there. Therefore, there is nothing for them to gain out of it. As a mother, of course, you have an expectation. Not necessarily that, you know, when you are older, your children will look after you, not necessarily that. But just the pure satisfaction that this is my child. I'm talking about that. It's not always, you know, that selfish, you know, like dirty selfish, and kind of, you know, if I look after my child, then someone will look after me when I'm older. It's not just that, I mean, I don't think it's always just that maybe a tiny tinge of that, but really it's more about, I, this is my child, I'm satisfied when my child is happy. I feel fulfilled, I feel like I've done something today, I feel like my life is complete when my child smiles. So, for that smile, because it makes you happy, you, you're willing to do anything. But if you take a Buddha, it is sufficient for the Buddha that you smile. They don't, he doesn't need for him to smile as a result of that, because his smile is not dependent on yours. How then does understanding of the Dhamma help one become merciful? How does understanding of the Dhamma help one become compassionate? And if you want to become more compassionate towards others, if you want to become... Actually, it would be wrong for me to say becoming compassionate towards others, because it is not towards others you are becoming compassionate. You're just becoming compassionate towards minds. That's what it is. So, if I was very careful in what I said, I'd I'd have to drop all the others part, right? Be be good to others, be kind to others, be generous to others, be thoughtful about others. This others part implies that there's you and there's others, right? But that very thought is based in ignorance. We're not talking about you and others, we're just talking about compassion. We're just talking about mercy, we're just talking about loving-kindness. So, when you begin to understand the Dhamma, you realize that what? There is no you and there is, there is no others. There are just chittas that suffer because of ignorance and attachment. And for as long as there is ignorance and attachment, that these minds would suffer. So, you understand what I mean by minds now? Yeah, what are you? We are addressing the mind now. Right? We've already given you breakfast. Now we are addressing the mind. Why did we give you breakfast? Why do you get breakfast? Because it helps you to focus on what, is, what matters. Right? Because if you are too concerned about your physical pains and discomforts, if, you, if this room was too hot, for instance, right? if you didn't have a drink of water when you felt thirsty, if you had to keep standing for the next two hours, right? soon enough you are not going to be able to concentrate on what I have to say. That is why, We provide the requisites, no other reason. It's not to please you. It's not like we throw a party every Saturday here. This is all because we need that as an environment to focus the mind on Nibbana. That's why. If you could switch off your sensation of your physical discomforts, I don't think we'd worry too much about whether you were fed whether you had the washrooms to go to and whether they were clean, whether the rooms were air conditioned and they were, you know, they were comfortable, whether you had a chair. If you could if you could consciously switch off all those physical discomforts while you're here, right, Then as you walk through the gates, just forget, just disconnect your mind from all these physical sensations, listen to the Dhamma, and on your way back, reconnect. <laughs> and then you can run to run home or run to the washroom or whatever you want to do. But you can't you can't do that. You can't suppress your sensation of all your physical aches and pains and all that because you know you've come here with a curse, haven't you? Now you have to fight that before you can fight the real battle. You've come here with a curse. That's why you have to bring a water bottle with you. See, even to come attend Nibbana, you still have to bring a bottle of water. (laughs) What the heck, man? Look at what you've done to yourselves. You've come here today, Nibbah. And you bring a bottle of water. See what we've done to ourselves. But these are the comforts that you need just so that your mind can focus on the real thing. That's why, if you have a sermon in the morning, then you have to get yourself some rest beforehand. If you've, been, if you've been burning the midnight oil, doing whatever, or you've been up all night, then once you get here, you can't stay fresh, you can't stay alert, you can't, you can't stay focused on, on, the, on the sermon. So, therefore, if you are preparing yourself for a, for a talk, either to give one or to listen to one, then it is incumbent upon you to rest this body. You have to do it out of compassion. Compassion for whom? Hmm? Wrong question. Yes, wrong question. It's not compassion for whom, it's just compassion. Now, now that you've all started to practice the Dhamma, right, you're all sravakas, sravikas, anagarikas, anagarikas and so on, have you stopped going to the gym then? Are you giving yourself, have you stopped giving yourself exercise? Have you become couch potatoes now? Because what relevance is that to Nibbana? Hmm? The body is not what attends Nibbana, so I can just, you know, be at home, have my meals and just prepare myself for the next sermon, and from sermon to sermon you just carry on. Do you still brush your teeth? Why? Out of compassion. Whose teeth? Whose teeth do you brush? Let's just get that straight first of all. Why do you brush your teeth? Do it out of compassion. The more the Dhamma becomes clear to you, the more you'll be able to do all these things and actually focus on Nibbana and practice compassion in your hearts. See, why is it only the things that you do for others are things that you can do out of compassion? Really think about this, take a moment to contemplate on exactly what I'm saying. I I, I need you to ensure that you carry the message that I'm intending to give, okay? Not Not what you understand, but I want you to take away the message that I'm really trying to give you here. Otherwise, you can very easily misinterpret what I'm trying to say. See, say you're stood in a queue, okay? And it's a queue, you're going to be served food. You're stood in a queue, and people are serving, and you realize that there are three people in front of you, there's only food for three people, so not enough for one person. Who's that one person? That one person is you. Okay? Now, you realize that there's only, there's only enough food for three people. You're the fourth person. You, all four of you have come to attend bar. Okay? You understand the background? Right, so here's my question <clears throat> You're the only person who is able to work out. The other three are maybe, you know, they just focus on something else, or maybe the three of them are blind. You're the only one who can see. So you realize that there's only th- food for three people meaning you're going to be hungry, and you have a whole day's worth of sermons, meditation, whatever, coming up. I ask you this question, are you willing to volunteer and speak to the other three people, or the people serving, or the organisers, whatever, and say, excuse me, there's only enough food for three people, but if we split this up among four people, then I also can be fed but if not only the people in front of me are going to be fed and then i'm going to be hungry yeah if you don't do that then you're only going to serve the, the, the three people in front of me but i'm going to go star i'm going to have to starve are you willing to volunteer yourself and suggest propose that they split the food up four ways so that all four of you can be fed are you or is that not very nibbanic hmm you should, yes. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with doing that? Yes, absolutely, it's just Nibbana. Because if you're concerned about what is needed, if your concern is, is about what is necessary, then you realize that it is necessary. But if you begin to think in this way, well, you know, I'm here for Nibbana, so I always have to care about other people. I only have, I have to care about others. So, the moment you start thinking about others, now there are others and there's me. See, you've separated again. The whole premise of this discussion is that this separation is what we are trying to come out of. Yeah, but as I said, I need to take this intelligently. This is good stuff, but only to an intelligent mind. Otherwise, if it falls on selfish ears, they become even more selfish. Selfishness is not thinking about yourself. Selfishness is thinking about the Self. I need you to reinterpret selfishness. When generally people think about selfishness, they're only thinking about, they think, okay, that's about me. They think that is selfishness. That's not just selfishness. That there are three of you in front of the queue, there's enough food for them, but there's not enough food for you. You don't speak up. You don't even suggest, might we, is it perhaps we can split this in four so that all four of us can be can be fed? Because if it was if it was somebody else there and you're not in queue, wouldn't you do that? Think about it. You're not the fourth member in the queue. You're just out, you're just a bystander. You're observing this and there's only enough food for three people. Wouldn't you now walk up and suggest, hey, you know, there's four of them. Maybe we can split it in four so that all four of them can be fed. And you feel like you've done something, right? You feel like you've, you've contributed to that, uh, to that problem and you've actually you know, done something. But if you're the fourth person standing in the queue, now you feel that you've done something good if you keep quiet so that the others are fed. And by the time you get to the queue, you're like, oh, it's, it's okay. I'm the merciful one, now. <laughs> yes. It is one aspect of selfishness. Once again, let me remind you, you need to take this exactly as I intended. Because if this falls on evil minds, right? this is for Sudhuminissu. Okay? This is for good, kind-hearted people. This is for people who, are, who have an abundance of compassion towards all, where others become more important than you. But my point here is, when we talk about selfishness, we're not talking about you. We're talking about the self, the sense of self. That sense of self can be here, here, there, over there, at the back of the room, on this side of the room, it can be anywhere. If the three of them stating their hunger is more important than yours, once again, that is selfishness. Because an Arahant deals with the need, not with the Whos. They deal with the need. What is the need? What is the necessity right now? If being fed is a the necessity, then every, each stomach that has to be fed, has to be fed. They're equal. So that's just one example. There are plenty of examples like that I can give you. And I want you to think about some of them and, you, and I want you to make the right choice when you're in, in those circumstances, when you're in those situations. So being selfless doesn't mean not thinking about me and thinking about others. Is that message clear with everyone? Yeah. Being selfless does not mean that you're thinking about everybody else and ignoring you because you can't do that. Even when you feel like you're thinking about everybody else and you're not thinking about you, who are you thinking about? You think about yourself. It's counterintuitive when you do that. All I'm going to think about is others, others' happiness, others' well-being. Are others fed? Are they, you know, are they dressed? Are they uh, have they got everything they need? Are, I, I, is everyone else comfortable? I don't care about me. All the while, who are you caring about? Yes. You're caring about yourself. And that makes you feel good. What makes you feel good? The fact that you're caring less about you and you're caring more about others. That makes you feel good. And in a funny way, you're actually doing something that pleases you. Once again, you're feeding the self. It's a, it's a, it's a perfect trap. That's why you need the Lord Buddha. That's why you need the perfect one to help you untangle these little knots. A lot of people fall into this trap. You know, this is why there is the worldly interpretation of Metta Karunamudita upeksha and the supramundane or the Lokotra definitions of Metta Karunamudita upeksha. There, we're not talking about me making sacrifices on behalf of others. Then, you know, what does that make you a martyr? I'm willing to make sacrifices on behalf of others. You know, this is what the suicide bombers do. What, are they disciples of the Buddha? Isn't that what they do? I am hmm? willing to suicide on behalf of others. So, where do they go? Don't answer that. <laughs> if that is nibbana, then nibbana is very easy to attain. True understanding of the Dhamma, Real understanding of the Dhamma, in that state of mind, ladies and gentlemen, you address the need. Like air, it addresses a need. Where, how does the wind blow? From an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. That's it, see? It's almost mechanical. It's very logical. That's why it's called physical science. It is not subjective. Very objective. It always blows in the direction where there is a need for it. That's the way it works. But when we start to practice on this path and we begin to become like Sudhu and we think, you know, we have to be good and sacrifice ourselves for others, all this while you're in Ayoniso It's good, you earn merits. Yes, this not not not, not so. You earn merits. But remember, all this while you're letting go physically of things you're holding on to mentally. That is why that practice in itself cannot get you onto nibbana. It can clear out the path because you know what you give is what you get. Yeah. So as you start giving something, so if you if you ensure that others are always, you know, they, everyone else in the room, they are, they have the comforts that they need, they have the the, the resources that they need, you know, they get a chair, they get some food, they get the water, they get the tea, they get the roti, whatever, and if you, if you, if you're always thinking about that, then because that is what you give, that is what you get. But remember, to get, you have to be, yeah, because we are not, you know, profound understanding of the Dhamma is to help you not become, not be a good person, although that is where we all start. Because to be a good person, you have to be in the first place, right? The Dhamma is to help you not be, what, a good person or a bad person. No, simply not be. Otherwise, don't you have the question as to why the Buddha... First, he always advised, work on yourself first and then help others. So, where's the goodness in that? Where's the goodness in that? I mean, if he was really good, and if, if he was selfless, then what, he, what should he have advised? He should have advised, you know, stop thinking about yourself. Just go and serve others. Just go keep serving others. In his philosophy, there is no you and there is no others. This separation is all based in ignorance. So, I speak about this with you, because I feel you're ready for, ready for this. If you were only, maybe, you know, first, you know, maybe you're thieves and whatnot, right? Liars and backstabbers and murderers and philanderers. I, I, I wouldn't be saying these things to you. you, know, if I went to a prison, for instance, and, you know, or maybe some other place, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to say this to them initially. First of all, i will have to say, stop thinking about yourself, start thinking about others because in giving you get initially when the when the self is so humongous your focus becomes your focus becomes you because the 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 bigger your sense of jati is your, the bigger your sense of self is you are so consumed by yourself that you know, there is not a spare moment to think about others because it hurts a lot that's the reason behind that it always hurts You know, being you is the biggest punishment that God has given you. Don't you feel that? That's the biggest punishment that has been given to you. What is that? Just being you. That is the biggest punishment. Because when you are you, and when you are nothing but you, every little thing hurts. Every tiny thing hurts. Because the bigger you are, the bigger you sense yourself, the more intensely you sense yourself, you have preferences about everything. That is how big you are. You have preferences about everything. Whether it's left or right, up or down, black or white, all these things. I'll give you some examples so so you, so you can make sense of this. See, if you're, now think about. Someone who is in the Arupa worlds, okay? In the Arupa worlds, do you care about what color your skin is? Do you? No, because you don't even care about color. Because color is not something you perceive in the Arupa worlds. So therefore, what you, the way you think about yourself is very limited. is very contained because color, you know, these things have not become part of your scope. What the jati is the same, but the the extent of that jati is very limited. It's very limited to your your little your small world there, yeah. But as you step out of the arupa world and you start venturing into the rupa worlds, now you begin to have a form of some sort. You have begin to shape, take some shape, right now. What happens what happened to the jati you were sensing well in the Arupa worlds? Has that now been dealt with altogether and you just have this rupa jati to left to deal with? Or has it just been added as another layer on top? That's the way it works. So you see, if this is your if this is your jati in the in the Arupa worlds, right? Consumed by your thoughts, that's it. That's all there is, your The Dhamma. Right? So it is only the Dhamma that you can do Abhisankara with. So what happens when you step into the rupa worlds? You have another layer on around this. That's what happens when you step into the rupa worlds. So you, you 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 begin to grow, right? Now, the sights you see, they have significance. So color has significance. Sound has significance. These were not things that were part of your world initially, when you were in the rupa worlds. But we don't stop there what happens next you step into the karma worlds the sensual worlds right then a whole another world starts to build around you see these are concentric circles you can't have just just this outside circle and not the inner circles they're all there so as you start to step out into the rupa worlds and the and the karma worlds all of the other stuff in, inside you know that's all still there so now your, your scope, your, your view of the world is so, so large and now you have sights and sounds and smells and taste and touch, all that becomes part of your world. So therefore, answer this question for me. When you were here, okay, here, where was this? This is the Arupa world. This is Arupa, Rupa and Karma world, okay? When you were in the Arupa world, Does the fact that this is black, did it bother you? But you don't like black. You don't like black now. Back then, did you like black or did you not like black? <laughs> exactly. Black was not part of your understanding, it was not part of your world. So therefore, the fact that this you know, this was still black, but you were in the Arupa world. Yeah, you were in the Arupa world and this was still black, black was still black. There was still thunder, there was still lightning. Uh, there were still earthquakes and there were still volcanoes. Uh, there was all sorts of Rupa going on in the world, but it didn't bother you one bit, because you didn't know about it. It wasn't part of your world. So those things didn't hurt you. Then you stepped into the Rupa world. Now you know that this is black. And if it's black, now you have a preference about it. I don't like it black. I like it blue. I like it red. I like it green. See, now there's another your, your surface area, your, your attack surface area, it, it just continues to grow. Now there are more things that can be used to attack you. And what about sound? It only started to come into your world when you stepped out from the Rupa worlds, sorry, Arupa worlds into the Rupa worlds. So then sounds have now begun to bother you. So a screeching noise might, might be hurtful to your ears. You don't like it. Whereas a melodious sound, you like it. Someone sings a song or plays some music and in the middle they stop it. And it's your favorite song. It, doesn't, it didn't hurt you when you were in the Aropa world, but it does hurt you now. Those days it didn't used to hurt you, but it does now. And now physical touch, it hurts you. Taste hurts you. Smells hurt you. But when there's a foul smell, you walk by a garbage bin or a, you know, a cesspit. You cover your nose. You go, mm, that's very that's very foul. There's a stink. It hurts you. This is displeasure. Those days it didn't used to. So you see, the bigger yourself has, has, has grown, the more things in this world that can attack you. It's like your attachment, you know, this is like wizardry, isn't it? And Asat Purusha comes along. And they wave their magic wand, right? Then go Nitcha, Sukha, and Atta. And what happens? If the mind is enchanted by this spell, that's a spell. So if the mind is enchanted by this spell, then from that moment on there is suffering in that regard. That's what they do. All the time, there are satpurushas ignoble people, ignoble friends, they come along nichya and Atta. Wizardry. <clears throat> they cast a spell. And you've all been enchanted. So now it's, you're trying to come out of that enchantment, you're trying to come out of that spell, break that spell, and come out of it. That's what the noble friends do. They use their magic wand and they go, No, no. anichya dukha anatta. But you've been enchanted for so long, that now breaking this spell and coming out of it, 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 takes, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of merit. So this is what has happened. And now you're in the karma worlds. Now a lot of things hurt you. The fact that a lot of things please you is evidence that a lot of things hurt you. Is it not? Why do I say that? Why do I say that if there are things that, are, that please you, it is evidence that there are things that hurt you? What is pleasure after all? It's, it's relief from vexation, isn't it? So you are vexed to begin with before you can even consider relief from it. So you're vexed to begin with. So there is no such thing as real happiness, real pleasure, or, you know, true pleasure, genuine pleasure, there's no such thing out there. It is all based in freedom from or relief from vexation. So this is the trap that you've gotten yourselves into. Now, why was I talking about this? How did you get here? Yes. Ah, yes. Selfishness. Yes. Thank you. So, when you're focused on the self, um, the point I was trying to make was, Selfishness is not about thinking about oneself and not thinking about others. That is also selfish. It is, so selfless then is not about not thinking about oneself, neglecting one's own needs and thinking about others. That is also selfish, although we call it selfless. So, really, there are two categories of selfishness on death. The two categories of selfishness. This is... That's not how you normally write it, but I want to highlight the self part here. There are two categories. There are those who stand on this side. And then there are those who stand on this side. This is me. Others. Which camp are you in? Are you consumed by thoughts about yourself? That's you are the only one you think about. My needs, my wants, my comforts, my luxuries, my you know, me, 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 and me. That's it. Like my my house, my car my wife, my children, my job, all about me, then you, can, you think this is being selfless. It's not. But when this is a Kalu Manusaya, this is a Sudhu right? What a Sudhu does is they stop thinking about me and they start thinking about others. This is the natural journey. Yes, I am only talking about this to you now. You, 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 you go from here to here, and then from here, you step out. That's the natural journey. So, from here you come here, and then, then you start thinking about others. Little focus on yourself, although the self is still there, you're still concerned about your well-being, but you try, you know, this is you, some, you do it deliberately. You deliberately try to stop thinking about yourself and you start thinking about others. So, in moments where your needs and wants surface, you try to suppress them. I think you all experienced this. This is not news to any of you. Like say you're at home, you have your, your sibling, brother or your sister with you. You've got something new, something nice, a new toy. Hmm? I'm talking to a, an audience of adults and I'm talking about toys. There are a few children in the audience. Whatever, you know, maybe at the workplace. Yeah maybe at home doing something right you you have something it's only enough for one person but you're willing to take a back seat and get, let someone else enjoy it let someone else enjoy the ride you're willing for your sister your brother to have the best the biggest part the best part so there you think you're thinking about other, you're thinking about others and you're sacrificing yourself all the while you're still thinking about self do you see how this is also part of, you know, this is, if this is bad, this is good, isn't it? Aren't good and bad both part of this part of this world? So for this world to exist, you need people who think about themselves, and you need people who think about others. So these people also think about themselves, these things, and these people think about themselves, right? So the world can exist. Because remember, this person is also here so at some time, on, on some occasions. Maybe at, to begin with, you are 100 or maybe 99 percent here and one percent here, to begin with. Like 99 percent of the time you're here. One percent you step outside, maybe on uh, New Year's Day, and you, you crouch back into your own space the rest of the year, rest of the week. Maybe for Christmas, you step outside, and then you go back in. Maybe on uh, your mother's birthday, you step outside and buy something nice for her, and then you go back in. The point I'm trying to make is, ladies and gentlemen, ignorance and attachment is what's working here. When there's ignorance and attachment, there is self, or the sense of self. The sense of self is a sense of separation. That is what I want you to understand. Is there no separation when you're here? Isn't there? There is. Is there no sense of separation while you're here? There is. What's the difference? It's just sense of separation. That's it. There are, two, you know, there are two things mainly you sense when you sense separation, that is me and others. But they're both symptomatic of the disease of separation. That's it. So, as far as separation is concerned, it matters not which side of the fence you are. You're just as bad. I mean, this is good, but it's still bad. It's if you think well you, of course maybe you can say this is bad, this is good, and this is great but in com- in in comparison to great, good is also bad in comparison to good, well of course bad is totally bad <laughs> it's very bad. So enough fight against the sense of self, enough fight against jati. I'm not expecting this to happen for you overnight, but what I'm asking you to do is become aware of this. See if you can become someone who addresses necessity. When when you have the sense of self, this is the first ring that gets drawn, and you know, these two, they have to exist together. So you're never going to have just a single circle. It always comes as a pair. So if if you were, say, you all become arahants, and it's time for you to come back again. If we had to go back in time and find the first day you became an Arahan, the moment you become an Arahan, it's always like this. Always like this. So this circle on the inside, you can it grows in size. It can become larger, it can be, go back, become small, right? So you can you can have circles like this. There are some who are like that. There are some who are like this. This is the outer circle, this is the inner circle. So, all they can think about is themselves. They are one and the same. There is hardly any room at all for anybody else to to come in. But, for as long as there are circles, there are always two circles. There are always two circles. Always. Because if there is left, what is there also? Right. Can there just be the left side? Can there just be a left side? Then there is, no, there is no side, is there? If there's a left, there's always there's always a right. So in the same manner, if there's if there's a circle, there's always going to be another circle. So if there's me, there's always others. And if there are others, there's always me. What matters what the, the difference here is how much you think about these two. Because that all changes with drushti. I'm not talking about anichaduka anatta drushti. I'm talking about just general drushti. Say for instance, you know, you're someone who's, who always, let me draw these two in uh, different colors, so it makes sense. This is the others, right? So this is the self, you mean you, me and others. So you're like this, you're very selfish. This is the thing. When I say selfish, immediately you're thinking about someone who always only thinks about themselves. Okay, but let's take it in that, in that interpretation and not the interpretation I'm trying to give you out and share with you today. Because that is a generally accepted meaning of selfishness. Thinking about just oneself and altruism is considered thinking about others. Yeah, but let's just say you are a very selfish person. Hmm? You, all, all, you only think about yourself. Are you well? Are you happy? Do you have what you need? Okay, maybe you're a miser. You, you're not willing to share anything you have with anybody else. Right? If you are happy, then it matters not whether next door neighbors are you know, living a, hell, a life of hell. It matters not. Right? You all, you, all you think about is yourself. Maybe then you, you know, life becomes very difficult like that. Nobody likes you. You have no friends. You know, people like that, they, have, they hardly have any friends, because they, they can't think about somebody else. Because who do you want to be friends with? Someone who thinks about themselves or someone who thinks about you? Who do you want to be friends with? Huh? Someone who thinks about you, right? You, you want someone who thinks about others, so therefore they think about you. So those people, they have very little friends. So say, this person, you know, life becomes miserable for them, because they don't have any friends, no one likes to talk with them, no one likes to be with them, so they go and take some counselling. Maybe they come and meet Garika for a counselling session. And then they sit down and talk with this person. And then they realise, the reason I have no friends is because all I think about is me. Right? I don't send someone a birthday card. I don't, I don't wish someone good morning. I don't even sit there on Sunday. Right? When I go somewhere, all I'm concerned about is do I have somewhere to sit? Where is my meal? Where is my plate? Where is my cup of tea? Right? That's all I'm thinking about. I, I don't care whether the pers- next person who gets into the bus is a, is a pregnant mother. I don't care. As long as I have a seat, that's fine. I'm happy. I don't care about the fact that there are people who are elderly. I don't care about the people who are disabled or differently abled. Whatever. I don't care about any of that. As long as I'm happy, I'm well, I'm good, that's fine. Tickety-boo. Right? Then they listen to a counseling session. And they realize, this is why I don't have any friends. Nobody likes me. Nobody likes to talk with me. Nobody likes to be with me. Right? Nobody smiles with me. Life is becoming miserable, but I just don't know why. So then, when I begin to listen to this talk, I begin to realize, this is why. If I, if I want to be loved, I have to love others. If I want to feel cared for, I have to care for others. If I want people to think about me, I have to think about others. So you see, now this is a change in drushti. It doesn't step you outside of the two-dimensional world. You're still in the two-dimensional world. You're still very much in the two-dimensional world, only you're now jumping from one boat to another boat. Just a different kind of drushti. So in that drushti, you now begin to stop thinking about yourself a little bit and you start thinking about others because then it makes you feel better anyways. Because you have a problem now. Although you have the material things, you have your material possessions for you, there is something that your soul wanting and yearning for that you're not getting. And that is love and affection and friends. You're not getting that. Who wants it? You, I want it. I want it, but I'm not getting it. So therefore I went and took this counseling session and now I realize that to, to get that I have to give that. Why? Who wants it? Because I want it. See, I'm still in this circle. I'm still in this circle. But I realized now I have to stop thinking about me and I have to start start thinking about others. So now what you do, you start being a little bit more friendly, a little bit more outgoing maybe. right? So uh, when you go to a restaurant, you don't always expect the other person to, to pay the bill. You, you say, may I today? And everyone's like, oh, he offered to pay the bill. <laughs> Very surprised. Because it's never, because it never, never it's unheard of, <laughs> never been done before. So so this person now, you know, he, he started to do that. He's, he, wishes people a uh, happy birthday on their birthdays, you know, good morning, and gives a pat on the back, you know, gives a smile, congratulates people and appreciates others for, for the things they do. And now he continues to practice this. Right, with practice, here's what begins to happen. Because they have now little time to think about themselves. So this circle, which was like this, now becomes like this it becomes a smaller circle. So now there's more room to think about others. You can think of this like mind time. Mind time. How much time do you have to mind? Mind about me and mind about others. So this is mind space. How much much space do you have to mind about me versus to mind about others? So they continue to practice it, and now once they begin to practice this, this behavior about you know, being nice and kind and gentle to others, then they are beginning to, they begin to feel good now. Because they, you know, it is reciprocated. Right? Goodness begets goodness, happiness begets happiness, now a smile begets gets a, gets a smile in return. Now they, they feel happy about that. So they continue to do more of that. Right? And in and amongst this, you know, there are also others who are, who are born like that. They, they, all, all they do is think about others. These are people who have practiced this for a long period of time, you know, like people like the Bodhisattvas, for instance. They, you know, throughout their journey in Sansara, especially in the, in the last few, maybe millions or hundreds of thousands of birds, they've been thinking about others. So therefore, the, the time and the space that they have to think about themselves is becoming small, it's diminishing. But it's still there. Even if, even if it's just a tiny speck, it's still there. So, this can keep growing in size, it can keep expanding, it can keep condensing, and maybe, you know, one day it becomes this big. So, of the 24 hours they have in a day, maybe for half an hour they think about themselves and do things that are important to them, but the remaining time they are seen to be doing things for others. But, of course, all that makes them happy still. It still makes them happy. Expectations towards towards oneself, so, you know, towards my upkeep, right to my, towards my comforts say if i had if i had if i won the lottery okay maybe when i when i was here I, I was thinking all about myself i would have gone and splashed that money on buying myself something nice you know maybe go do some shopping buy myself a new car go on a, a tour right something like that but now i begin to understand that it's not me. I'm not the center of the universe. I have to start thinking about others as well. So now maybe if I won the lottery, I'll go and, you know, build some houses for homeless people. Maybe I might go to a, a children's home and, and, and give them something. Right? Maybe I might uh, put some money aside to, towards uh, wildlife conservation. So I'm beginning to think about others. But there's still a me, there, there, you know, this is not the extermination of ourselves. I'm just, I just now have more time and space to think about, think about others than think about myself. So, you're either here or you're here. Throughout your life, you're in one of these two circles until, of course, you listen to the Dhamma. Arahathut is, you can't explain it through this, through this model. It's outside of this realm. It's, it's a completely different realm, isn't it? This is Arahathut. You step outside the whole notion of self. See, once you step outside here, you don't see these differences. This completely disappears. Completely. Right? In fact, this disappears as well. Now, where are you? If there's no circle, are you in or are you out? That's the wrong question. Yeah, it's und- it is undefined. The, mind you, that when you give, when you when you say something is undefined, there it is, but it's not defined yet. Whereas this is it's non-existent. You can't even what are you trying to define? <laughs> there is nothing that requires definition. Yeah. So so now there is no me and there is no others because you see, once I remove those circles, I have to rub these off as, as well, erase them, haven't I? You can no longer talk about me, you can no longer talk about yourself. So therefore, for the arahant, the arahant realizes that there is still jati. So there are still chittas in which jati arises. That, of course, the arahant understands. He knows this, in this chitta there is no longer jati. But he also knows this. He knows that, for example, in this mind, they still see this. So he knows what he thinks. Yeah, he knows what he thinks. Now, just ignore for the fact that this is the same person. There are three different people, two Prutakjanas, P1, P2, and this is the Arahant. Okay? So when the Arahant was, was inside this circle, he initially thought a lot about himself and very little about others. So he was the first type of Prutakjan. Then he, he took a counselling session with the anagarika and then he realised that it is no point thinking about oneself. He has to they have to think about others more so than oneself. So then what did he do? He jumped outside. Ah, wrong way. The other way around. Okay? I've <laughs> now, now change changed the diagram. So now he's, he's he's now the other type of Prutak channel. So this is P1, this is P2. The other type of he he's still a Pratak channel. So he's still thinking about self. Is he not selfish? What about initially? Was he not selfish when he was inside here? He was selfish. And here, he's still selfish. They are still selfish. But then, they listen to the Dhamma. So one counselling session led to another counselling session, that led to another counselling session, and then slowly you begin to start to preach to him the Dhamma, and then you start to talk about Jati, and you start talking about this sense of separation, and then you burst that bubble. Then he realizes, what? You mean we are just Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Samkhara and Vinyana? There are no owners to this? Are you telling me that this body doesn't belong to me? Because it belongs to somebody else? No, no, no. Because there is no notion of belonging. So therefore this mind is not mine either. It's just a mind. So once they begin to realize this, in other words, once they have seen the first noble truth, then this circle begins to disappear. It doesn't have, or happen just all of a sudden like that. You know, it starts to crack. It starts to crack at the seams, and then gradually, as they continue to focus on the truth. So you know, this is what... See, every time you do Ioniso Manasi are you're, you're reinforcing these circles, both of these circles. Every time you're thinking about yourself and not others, you're reinforcing this circle, you're still a self and you're also reinforcing this circle. Every time you are thinking about others and not you, still again you're reinforcing this circle. Because I'm thinking about others, not about me. What are you thinking about? When you're not thinking about others and you're thinking about you, you're thinking about self. When you're thinking about others and not thinking about you, or thinking about you and not thinking about others, you're still all the while thinking about the self. Because self is not you or me. Self is separation. Just separation. Separation is separation. If I draw a line, now you have left and right. Yeah? When you focus on which side of this are you partisan? Are you taking one side? Both. Because the moment you drew that line, now you have sides. So, the only way to do away with left, if you, if you want to take out the left side, what should you do? Keep the right side? No, exactly. If you want to do away the right side, what should you do? Draw the line. You want to draw the line? Erase the line. Do away with the line. So then, once you begin to understand what the self is, this is what I am saying. We are giving a new interpretation to the word selfish. Selfish does not mean thinking about you. Selfish means thinking about the sense of self thinking about separation, sense of separation, it's a sense of separation. That is what selfishness means. This is why I gave the example earlier, if you are stood in a queue, there's only food for three people, you're the fourth person standing there, if you can't bring yourselves forward and go and speak to the organizers or the people serving the food and tell them, Sir, Madam, there's only, there's only food for three people, but there are four people in the queue, would, don't you think it would be better if we split it four ways, so that everyone has something? Yeah? If you feel that you're doing something not nice, or you know, you, feel, you feel a little bit uncomfortable doing that, what are you thinking about now? you think thinking about self. That is also self-based thinking. Because you need to focus on necessity. See, as a mother, going back to the very first example I brought up, a mother is very selfish because naturally they have to be for the for the for the survival of their child you know if the child is not fit enough if the child is weak right some, some children they are born weak right and then they need a lot of love and attention medical attention sometimes right and motherly love and care right you need someone to always be by their side watching them right feeding them whatever if that was not there how can a child survive in today's world you know survival of the fittest is the law of the, law of the jungle but the reason that human beings are able to survive, even when they're born disadvantaged, is because there's mother's love and mother's intuition and mother's intelligence. I would say mothers, I mean parents, right? And those forces continue to sustain this, this life, even when natural selection would determine that this life no longer should be, should 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 exist, even when that is the judgment of natural selection. Your motherly instincts will surface and keep this child functioning, keep this package together. That is because of self-based thinking. So, as a mother, I think you'll know where you have to give something to two, say your child and another child. I know know this feels yucky to talk about something like this, because you're not like this now. But if you maybe, you've, you've seen parents like this. Let's say it's not, I'm not talking about you. You have seen parents like this who will give special treatment to their children, but they will mistreat other children. I mean, I I, I have seen, I have personally seen this. I have personally seen this. Sometimes, you know, parents, they trust maybe an uncle, someone in the family, right? Maybe they trust a a neighbor, maybe they trust a relation, and they leave their children with them. Sometimes they leave their children with them and they go abroad. Sometimes they leave their children with them and go for the weekend. Maybe they have to go and do some work, right? Things that people will not do, harm that they will, not, they will never consider doing to their own children, sometimes when vexation builds up in their mind, they inflict it on other children. Children get abused all the time in this way. Hardly, hardly anyone talks about it because, again, it's a crime in the family, isn't it? So who wants to share, share these details out with everybody else? Who goes washing dirty linen in public? Most of the time, young children, they get abused by relations. Most of the time. People who are entrusted to keep an eye out for them. See, but the mother or the father, you know, if they're a mother or a father, they would never do that to their own child. So why is that okay to be, to, to, to be done on another child? Because when when another child is concerned, not the same compassion, not the same kindness, not the same mercy. But when it's my child, I have mercy on my child. This is why it is all self-based thinking. That is why looking after your own children does not earn you a lot of merits. When you look after your own children, look after them, feed them, whatever, right, give them a good education, these things don't earn you a lot of merits because those merits are defiled those actions are defiled not the merits are defiled but rather those actions are defiled i mean otherwise how can a mother die and be born as a preta you know when they devote themselves their whole lives to a child how can that be possible if 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 being if being a mother is tremendously meritorious Right? How can a mother who sacrifices her whole life towards this one child can, can die and be born as a preta, in the preta yoni? Or maybe even go and be born in the hells? How is that possible? Now, we have the Dola Spirit Puja coming up, right? In a couple, in a week's time. I, I always say that is, the, that is the most popular event at the monastery. Because you bring a lot of people with you, don't you? Some among the living and some <laughs> among the dead is <clears throat> the most popular event at the monastery. More people turn up for the Dolo than any, any other event. So, you know, we will be making that offering and we know that there are, there are some relations of yours who are still unable to let go of the attachment that they have towards maybe you. But if being a mother is so meritorious, then how come such things can happen? because the moment they are dead, they have to be gone, they have to go and be born as, you know, devas in, in a very, in a very high devas. But that doesn't always happen. So that's why I say, for as long as they, we have self-based thinking, that merit is tarnished, that deed is tarnished. So, how then do we actually enhance the power of the meritorious deeds that we do? How do we, how do we make it more pure? For that, we need the Dhamma. That is why I asked you right at the beginning, how does the Buddha become the merciful one? What is it about him that has made him merciful? Why do we call him the merciful one? How is the the understanding of the Dhamma, how does the understanding of the Dhamma help one, elevate one, to become merciful? See, real mercy, ladies and gentlemen, then is not sacrificing yourself and thinking about others. That is not what real mercy is. True mercy is an understanding that the real problem here is the sense of self to begin with. It's the sense of jati. Not the sense of jati, but rather jati itself, the sense of separation. Now see, once you understand that, okay, until let's say until you understand that, so we are not talking about the person who's come for the counselling session, we are talking about a person who, who has yet to come for a counseling session. All they're focusing is on themselves. Then they see others. So they see, uh, this is my child. This is somebody else's child. Somebody else's child. Another person's child. Yet another person's child. See, there's another person's child. There are a lot of children, and they all belong to others. Okay? My child, of course, is very close to me. I say, I have two children. They're close to me, and these are all the other children. now you have a special connection to these children because this is all based on drushti there are two types of drushti i'm talking about here i hope you're in tune with what i'm trying to explain to you there are two types of drushti one drushti is this drushti of self that there is such a thing called separation that is one drushti the moment you have that drushti these two circles are drawn understood that's one drushti that's a primary drushti that is also based in ignorance there's a second drushti and that is this child is better than this child. This child is kind. This child is fair. This child is smart. this child is uh, he's, he's very uh, courteous. This child is very respectable. right This child is mischievous. These are also the. if you 've ever been a teacher you know what i 'm talking about you'd have had, you would have had a favorite student in your class and you'd have had those students who can we get them out of this class, please? The students that you wished were never part of your class were never in your class. Right? As a teacher, you will—I'm sure—you will have experiences. You know, there are good days where those children—you know—they're sick, they don't come. So when you get a sick note from a child who's always mischievous, that's a good day for you. But—but <laughs> huh? but if you—if a child who's very obedient in class, they're always paying attention, they're always doing their homework, right? If they're not present in class, then, you know, it's not a good day for you. You wish that the child was there. That is also based in drishti, but that is not the fundamental drishti. These are all secondary drishti. That's not the primary drishti. What is the primary drishti? This. There's me, my children, and there are other children. Secondary drishti is the drishti, which, you know, they, they change all the time. For, the, for, to, for you to change the secondary drishtis. You don't need the association of a Buddha. You don't need that. You don't need a Kalyanamitra. You know, that's what happens all the time. You know, people share ideas among among each other. Some uh, one of the, one teacher might come and tell you, you know, that child. Don't you know, don't you like that child very much? No, nah, I, I don't know. He doesn't do his work. He doesn't come. He's not punctual. I right? never turns up for lessons. Doesn't answer any questions I ask him. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of given up on him. And then this teacher tells you, here. I, I think you've got it all wrong. He's lost his mother recently, and his father's a drunkard, right His brother's doing drugs. You know it's, it's very, with, with much difficulty, this child is actually managing to come to school every day. Right? So if he gets a square meal, then that's, that in itself is a, is, a, is a miracle. So I think this child deserves your love, your kindness, your compassion. See, another a teacher, this is not the Buddha who's spoken with you. Right? One of your fellow teachers, they've come and spoken with you for 10 minutes and now your drushti has completely changed. Now who's your favorite child in the class? <laughs> who's the child now you want to smother in love and affection? That child. See, that can change on a daily basis. It can change on an hourly basis. These are the drushtis that change all the time throughout your, throughout your life. So that doesn't step you from an ignoble person to a noble person. You know, that, is, that change is a groundbreaking change. That requires a, a completely new paradigm. So that's, that is the primary drishti. So that primary drishti has to be broken either by a Buddha or someone who is a disciple of the Buddha, a sravaka of the Buddha. So that, that disciple comes and speaks to you and says, You know, you're talking about this child, that child, he's a good child, bad child. Because, you know, when when we talk about these good children and bad children and obedient children and mischievous children, although I've just drawn them like this, actually, they're also circles. See, these are the obedient children. Hmm? These are the mischievous children. You have, as teachers, you have this. It's very difficult to not see the world in this way. Because the world is always binary ones and zeros, good people and bad people. Right? Then you have the, uh, the, the children who always come and worship you for new years. Then there are those who don't even stand up when you walk into the class. Right? We hate them. <laughs> you know, so you have these, these sets. These are all sets. Do you not remember from math you learn sets? What were those diagrams called? Venn diagrams. What do Venn diagrams do? Yes. They are Venn They are supposed to <laughs> <laughs> So this So these are the secondary drushtis. These are all secondary drushtis. And what you do is, you... So initially you are thinking about this child is a good child, right? And then they do something naughty. So what do you do? You take them out of this group and you put them along with the other children in this group. So they are the naughty children. So you have your favourites. This is how things change from day to day. This is why you, you love some people today, you hate them tomorrow. You get along with some, you don't get along with the other day, the, next, the following day. That's why this happens. But see, now when you begin to listen to the Dhamma and you realize that all of these are separations that you have created in your own mind, they're not fixed entities, they're simply manifestations. And these are all projections of your own mind, out to the outside world. Now what happens is, you know, all these circles, they begin to disappear. Not all at once. Becoming a Sautapanna is about understanding that these separations are all, you know, this is like a lattice. We talked about this in one of the sermons. This is a lattice. You overlay these separations onto people. Those separations don't really exist. This is an overlay. It's like a lattice you put on top of it and then you change them from time to time. But once you begin to understand that these are all simply manifestations of the mind, now you realize that these are, you know, these are not real boundaries, these are just me, you know, mind-made boundaries. And that realization itself weakens those boundaries, that realization itself. It's enough to free you from, as the Buddha says, as he puts it, you know, it frees you from a whole world of suffering and leaves you with only as much suffering as seven stones in comparison to a whole world of suffering. A whole world in comparison to seven small pebbles. That's it. It gives a comparison. So that, that is enough to do that. And then what happens as you continue with your practice? You know, these boundaries, they begin to disappear. Gradually, they begin to disappear. You contemplate. Every time you see a boundary, you contemplate. You contemplate on the fact that these boundaries are simply manifestations. These boundaries are simply projections of the mind. These are not real. They are made-believe boundaries. Right? It's because I, I think certain things are, are separable. And those separations bring me pleasure. So this, this is all my drishti. You, you contemplate on, on, the, on reality. The reality is, you know, they are not fixed boundaries. That's why today this guy is here, the next day this guy is here. But today you like him, tomorrow you don't like him. You contemplate on this, that really there's not a good person and a bad person. All there is, is goodness manifests in this moment. Goodness manifests in this moment, otherwise it's Angulimar, a good person or a bad person. If you fix them as good people and bad people, Right? Then, the good people will always be good and the bad people will always be bad. So I ask you the question, are you a good person or a bad person? What is the answer that comes from within? That will be the, uh, the same answer for everyone. What are you? I'm a, I'm a good person. Yes, everyone will say, I'm a good person. Ask someone else. It depends who you ask. They'll either say, you're a good person, or they'll say, you're not such a good person, right? But you know, you think you're a good person, others will have their own opinions. The thing is, their opinions are based on what they observe. They are the things you say, the things you do, your reactions, your responses to their interactions with you, right? And they change depending on the situation. They always change depending on the situation. You know, if you're, feeling, if you're feeling positive about something, if you're feeling, if you're feeling good, right, on a good day your reactions are very different to a bad day, are they not? You're more uh, forgiving on a good day. Right? Maybe you've had a, a good day at work. Today is your you, they, they, the boss has just announced that you're going to get a bonus hmm? or that you're going to get a promotion. On your way home from work, right? Don't you feel extra generous towards other people? I Normally, maybe you go and run, you go and get into the bus and catch the seat. But today, you feel extra generous, you let everybody else on first. And then after you get onto the bus, you want to give your seat to everybody. You feel like Mahatma Gandhi, <laughs> on that day, just that one day. It might last for maybe a week or so, because you know, you, you, are, you live in this, in this fancy world that you've created, you, you feel really good. That is very natural. Just catch yourself when that happens. I'm not asking you to stop it from happening. Just observe that that is what's going on. There will be days that will be like that. When you get a compliment from someone, someone you've been wanting to receive a compliment from, you know, those days you feel elated. You feel like, you know, you're on seventh heaven. You feel like that. Those days, you know, watch yourself. Ask others, whether they noticed a difference in your in your behavior in your manner and they'll say today you're you know you're awfully nice why is that they'll ask you because that is not your normal self you feel generous you feel charitable if someone gives you a compliment maybe on the way home you'll you know you'll tip you'll give some uh, a beggar some money because you feel very you feel very generous that's the way the mind works when the mind is at joy right It becomes a magnet for other people's merits. That's why. That's why you are good. You become a magnet for other people's merits. But when the mind is not joyful, when the mind is miserable, hurt people? Hurt people. When the mind is miserable, meaning when the mind is hurt, now you are not a blessing to others. Now you become a magnet of the other people's demerit. That's why when you have a bad day at work, the dog knows. The wife knows. The children know. Sometimes when the wife knows, initially a little little while later, next door neighbors also know. Yeah, and then the in-laws get to know. Yeah, all because you had a bad day at work. Because when the mind is not at joy, it is not merciful. Because, so again, what I'm saying is, when your mind is focused on self... You cannot be merciful. So then, why is the Buddha the merciful one? He sees, he does not see a All he sees is his minds that are suffering. He sees jati. I mean, that is how he became a Buddha, by seeing jati, right? He realized jati was the problem here. So once they realized jati, now there are two kinds of chittas in this world chittas with jati and chittas with no jati not people with jati and people with no jati just chittas with jati and chittas with no jati so you might ask me then is that a separation no what i mean by separation is a separation that then cannot be removed from its causes jati is not something that is that can be removed from its causes jati will only prevail for as long as the causes for jati prevail jati is not independent nothing is independent except for Nibbana, because Nibbana is not an entity. So for something to be independent, it has to be a non-entity. Whatever is an entity is always dependent, is always dependent on the causes that keep it up. It's always kept up. It's kept up. See, this duster is kept up. It's not up. What is it? It's kept up. By what? The arm so what about the arm then is it up it's also kept up by the body the torso what about the torso then is it is it up it's also kept up so then all things are kept up because this body is resting on this on this bench what about the bench then it's also kept up and the and the bench is on the on the stage and the stage is yeah or, you know, how causes come together and, and manifest. So, Rupa is a manifestation. Because a Rupa is kept up as Rupa, a Vedana is kept up as Vedana, Sanya is kept up as Sanya. And when you, when you change those causes, the effect, it's a different effect that manifests. How do we know something is different to another? How do you know that, for example, this is a duster and this is a pen? Different different manifestations but what do you really perceive uh, Yes so jati is what helps you to separate them they have different qualities don't they Different, arrangements, different characteristics. exactly different characteristics different characteristics meaning extend they, they extend themselves as different qualities right so when you chant the Buddhaguna right what do you, you you're contemplating on the qualities right? The qualities of Buddhahood. Uh, ultimately, that is all there are, qualities. The Chitta is also a quality. It has a characteristic. That is why it's called a Chitta. Aramana Vijanana, Lakkana Chitta. This is a characteristic. That the characteristic of recognizing and perceiving objects is called a Chitta. So the characteristic of being able to write makes this, qualifies this, a pen, a pencil, something like that. So, so th- that is what there is. So really, then, it would be wrong for us to think that there are fixed entities in this world. But that is what happens here. When you are thinking about selfish, when you are based in selfish thinking, this is really entity-ish thinking or entity-based thinking, self-based thinking. All the same, jati, jati-ish, if you want to call it that. That's what's going on. So when there is jati, there's always me and there are others. Why is there me and there are others? Why is it not just all? Why do you think there's me and then there are others? Why that separation? That's the chitta. You know, it's the chitta that experiences jati. It's the chitta in which jati is born, isn't it? So when jati is born, there is a perception. What do chittas do, by the way? They perceive, isn't it? They perceive. Chittas perceive. So whatever is presented to them, they perceive. So when a sight is presented to them, they perceive sight. When sound is perceived, when an object is presented to them, they perceive sound. Because sight, sound, these are all perceptions. Yeah. So in the same way, when jati happens in the mind, they perceive separation. Chittas perceive separation. So when a chitta perceives separation, that separation begins with separating or identifying uniquely that Chitta itself. So, you know, although you think you're identifying yourself, you know, this person, you, when you stand in front of the mirror, right, you identify yourself as male, female, tall, black, short, fair, blonde, whatever, you you perceive yourself in that manner. Really, ladies and gentlemen, this is just the Chitta identifying itself as a separate Chitta from everything else. So then why does the Chitta feel that I am a male? Because in that moment of separation, it's seeing something through the eyes. The eyes has brought an object. There's also the memory. right? So, a, a combination of these things together help the chitta to perceive that I am not just a separate chitta. You, do you ever feel that you are just a chitta? Do you? No, you feel that you are a man, you feel you're a woman, you feel you're a, a husband, you feel you're a wife, excuse me. You feel you're a person, you feel you're a human being. How can a chitta feel that it's a it's a man or a woman? It's because it is not just a pure chitta that's feeling this way. The chitta is reinforced by all the inputs that it receives at that moment, in that moment of the chitta rising, it receives all these stimuli from the from the world and also memory. Memory is also one source of information. Just as the eyes are a source of information, memory is a source of information, ears are a source of information, so all this information, they come together and that computation happens in the chitta. And at the moment of separation, because all these inputs have been received, now it perceives you, you as a package, not just as a chitta. So you see, when the chitta feels race, only your arm races, other arms don't race. This gives it enough evidence to determine that, ah, then there's me, and then there are others. Because what I want to do only happens with me, see? Right now, I want to raise my right arm. As I raise my right arm, none of you are. So I don't have a reason to think that you are me. But remember the first time you stood in front of a mirror? You may not remember this because it was too long ago. You stood in front of the mirror, and when you raised your right arm, what did the mirror do? Ignore the fact that it was a mirror mirror image, so it would have been their left arm. But, you know, when you raised an arm, what did the mirror image do? It raised an arm. Were you not surprised by that? You will not recall this, I'm sure, because it was far too many years ago, when you were very young. But the, 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 the discovery of a mirror image was quite baffling, I would have thought. Because you're thinking, hold on, all this while there was only one person that responded. To me, and now there are two people responding to me. You know, you observe you can observe this with animals. <laughs> they don't have the intelligence to work out that this is not another being, this is just a mirror, mirror image. Like sometimes when you are sat in the sermons out there in the Dhamma hall, you have these little birds that fly around and then they start, they, they come and they see the, the little the, the aluminium parts, not the, the the stainless steel parts of the door, the glass door they have outside in the dhamma hall. And when they're just uh, walking around up and down, they see, they see their reflection and they think it's another bird. So what do they do? <laughs> what do they do? They, they peck. And that's why you hear the noise. So this bird is trying to communicate with the other bird. And you, you know, you, you've been on YouTube long enough to see how you know, some animals are startled by the, the, you know, identifying or recognizing there's another one of them in the mirror but they just don't know that there's another one. So this is the same thing, or at least they don't know that this is just a mirror image. This is exactly what happened when you were younger, when you first discovered a mirror. You would have looked at yourself in the mirror and wondered, who's this? That was a shocker. But then you realize there are things called mirrors and it's not actually me there, it's just a mirror image. So this is why a chitta begins to feel that it is not just a chitta. None of your chittas feel that they are chittas, do they? They all feel that they are part of a whole package. That's how your chitta perceives yourself, because of all the information that it also receives at the moment of its inception. So, if you want to get out of self-based thinking, my ask of you is not to contemplate on being selfless, by virtue of thinking of others without thinking of oneself. It is the first step, yes, because if you are very consumed with or just yourself, you are, you are more likely to do unmeritorious deeds, more likely. See, people who have a big one of these ones, the red ones, they do a lot of unmeritorious deeds, don't they? Killing and lying and sensual or misconduct, because they have to all the other forces acting on it, they feel are threats from the outside. People who think less about themselves and think more about others, they do a lot of meritorious deeds. Think for a moment whether that is not true. Right, you give food to others, right? Uh, maybe help out someone, right? Help someone do their schoolwork, help someone with their with their work at, uh, at the workplace. Maybe you know, wash someone's car, right? Take take someone's dog for a walk, right? Maybe mind someone's children for them. Wash someone's dirty uh, dishes, right? Whatever, and these are things you can do. Borrow, lend someone some money, or gift someone some something to someone, right? These are things you do when you think about others. So this is a good space for merit. In here, there's a lot of demerit when you're thinking about yourself, all about yourself. Because then you need happiness for yourself. So then it doesn't matter whether you're... If you need something, you'll take it even if it belongs to somebody else. Because that somebody else is out here. Yeah? Say, so for your happiness, I'm willing to take that necklace. I know it's theirs, but I don't care, because I want it. So now, when you don't care about their happiness, you start doing lots of unmeritorious deeds. That's why I said, Kalu minisu are here. A lot of Kalu minisu are here. Sudha minisu, over here. Right? But, Heller, great people, they step outside these two boundaries and come out here. For them, there is no Punya and there is no Papa. Punya Papa? Ayanasa. Because there is no scope for merits or demerits. And Arahan doesn't steal, not because he knows that it hurts somebody, because, for him, the sense of ownership no longer exists. See, there are a number of factors that need to align for a demerit, the, the demerit of stealing to happen. Number one, you need to know that it belongs to somebody else. What's that again? You need to know that it belongs to somebody else. If you take something that you think is yours by mistake, is that is that a demeritorious deed? Is it? Certainly not. Because you think it's yours, you take it, you don't realize it. You don't earn any demerit by doing that. But if you know that something belongs to somebody else and then you take it, that is demeritorious. So you see, for a demerit to occur, you need to think, you need to have this sense that some, there are things that belong to people. And Arahant, you know, they have completely exterminated that way of thinking. For them, things don't belong to people. They know it, it's just knowledge. Conventionally, there are things that belong to people. So they don't take um, another monk's arms bowl. They don't do that. But internally, they don't sense that. Do you see the difference between the two? It's like when you are today, when your children play with, you know, playthings like playhouse, you know that it's just a kid right, playing around. But when you were younger and you were the kid, you actually sense that you were doing it for real, right? When you were driving around in a little, you know, take the bucket, the lid of a bucket, and you were driving driving around in it, boom, 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 right? Driving around the house, house, you obviously sense that you were driving. As a kid, you did. But today, you see your children doing it, but you don't do it. But you don't stop them from doing it either, because it's harmless, and you know that for the kid, it seems like they're doing it for real. So you let them enjoy that. That is the difference I'm trying to just point out to you. One is knowledge, the other is the emotional emotional internalization of it. You're living it. The other is just knowing it. That's the difference in living it and knowing it. So what an Arahant does is, they understand that there are people out there, like this person here, they know that there are people in here. In other words, they know that there are people in this world who have the, who have jati in their minds, they sense the world separate. So they sense that there is other people. So now don't, don't you think an Arahant would offer someone to give them a, a, an arm, give them some arms? Hmm? Why, why then does Mughalan Maharaj Tanwan say, why does he go on arms round with his arms bowl? He wants to give other people, sometimes we you know poor people, an opportunity for, to offer arms. If they were all Arahants, I doubt Mughalan Maharathan Mansi would have bothered. Because what he understands, uh, the Mughalan Thera, what he understands is, he here's a poor man who believes that I am me and these are all other people. So the, this person thinks, I am also part of this world. Yeah? So he's thinking about the other person. So he thinks, let's say this is Siripal, this is Mughalan Maharathan right? For Mughalan Maharathan Vansi, there is, no, there is no he and others. But he knows that there is Pala here, who thinks that there are two types of people in this world. Mughalan Maharatan Vansi knows this. He knows that there are two types of, he knows that he thinks, Pala thinks that there are two types of people in this world. Good people and bad people. Ok? So, Mughalan Maharatan Vansi comes along. He doesn't know the first thing about a monk. He asks, what do you want? I've just come for some food, if you have any left. Why should I give you? Then Mughalana Maharaja starts to preach. He speaks about goodness. He speaks about Nibbana. Now this person is utterly impressed. He realizes the Dhamma. And then what has happened? Initially, he thought this is just a beggar come to bother me. So, here's where he was. Here's where Siripala plays Mughalana Maharaja. But then he preached the Dhamma. Now, what, yeah, what has Siripali done? He's moved Mughalatamandru from there to here. So now he feels joy towards this person, prasad. So now he waits for this person's offering. Because the, the Arahant knows that this person is now feeling joyful about this person, about, about him, and therefore whatever he gives to this person is now meritorious. Because now he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking about others, meritorious deeds. Whereas when he thought that this was just a beggar, come to bother him, he's like, go away. Get out of here, because don't you come to bother me. I'm thinking about myself. You've come for my food, go away, don't bother me. See, now he's thinking about himself. Sometimes even maybe saying harsh things. Right? Why do you all beggars, like you, bold headed people, come and bother us all the time? Get lost. See, demerits, as he does that harsh speech disrespecting, but then he preaches the Dhamma, he begins to realize that he's, this is not just an average person, a very special human being, a noble one, a disciple of the Buddha, and then now he starts doing merit because he, start, he starts thinking about others. But Mughalana Mahārātana says, all the while knows that this person still sees the world as black and white. But having offered these arms, now he has enough merits to understand the Dhamma. So, the Mughalanteiro says, all right, why don't you come along to the monastery next Saturday? We have a sermon. So, he comes to the monastery on Saturday. He listens to the sermon. The offering that he has given has earned him merits to receive now. Because he has given ayyuvana sapabala patimana, and now it's time for him to receive ayyuvana sapabala patimana. So, now it's time to receive that. He sits down and he listens to the sermon. Mukherjana Maharathan Vasi is preaching to him. He realizes the truth. What does he realize? That all of these <laughs> were merely fabrications of the mind. Once he understands this, he has seen the first noble truth of suffering. He has seen the cause for it. Now he realizes that when attachment ceases, these boundaries will begin to cease. And then he understands the Noble Eightfold Path. So now he has been moved to Samaditti, He continues his practice, samma sankapa, samma vacha, samma kamanta, all the while, samma really, what samma means is whatever speech, words, sorry, thoughts, words, or uh, thoughts, actions, or words, thoughts, actions, or words, which contribute to disintegrating these boundaries that are purely fabrications of the mind. Because it is those fabrications that separate the world into the various quarters that they are, rendering to the mind itself an opportunity to see the world as good things and bad things, nice things and not so nice things and lovely things and ugly things and beautiful things and and all that. Lefts and rights, blacks and whites, men and women, things I like and things I don't like, raga and dvesha all based in Mohan. So this is what goes on. So this is the journey that we are on. Now tell me, wasn't Maharat and Maharathan Mahasi merciful? Was it not out of mercy he went to, the, to this person, holding his arms bow, and then when this person said, get lost, he didn't. He said, I have something to tell you. So he started preaching. Not out of mercy? Of course. And then he said, I wish I would now, I am now so impressed by you, Venerable Sir. Please accept my offering. And he does. Out of what? Out of mercy. Then he says, why don't you come to the monastery? Come on Saturday. Out of what? Mercy. Then he comes to the monastery. This person preaches the Dhamma. Sorry, the person listens to the Dhamma. Mughal Maharaj and Mas preaches the Dhamma. Out of? Out of mercy. Now they have understood the Dhamma and out of mercy. See what mercy has delivered to this world. Mercy has left this man, someone who was inside this red circle, all they could do was think about themselves. To some, he shifted him from there to here, and then from there to outside the circle. So all of this is worldly, mundane, outside of this is supramundane. All of this is laukika, stepping outside is lokottara. This is the local. That's the local. Good and bad all in this world. That is why they are called the Merciful, the Mercifuls. And that is why the Buddha is called the Merciful One. Because it is He, with no help and support from anyone, He is the source of mercy. And from His mercifulness, everyone else has become merciful. So whatever mercifulness you might see from the Swami that you associate, whether it be that at this temple or elsewhere, for any Upasikas and Upasikas any mercifulness that you might experience from them. If it is all based in mercy through understanding and realization, the source of that is no doubt from the supremely enlightened one, the merciful one. All our mercy comes from Him. No other way. Otherwise, the only mercy that you might see within us is the mercy that a mother would have towards her own child. But the reason that you you see mercy beyond that, If you do, it's because we inherit that through our understanding of the Dhamma from the Merciful One. That's how it happens. So if you have us to thank for mercifulness, it is not us who deserve that credit. That mercifulness comes from the Merciful One. Make sense? Very good. Right, let's conclude for today. So we have the Dakinaya, can come in just a moment, be merciful, the monks will come on arms out of mercifulness, you can offer arms out of mercifulness. What do you offer? Ayu, Vanna, Sapabala, Patipa, that is what you offer, out of mercifulness. And create space and give opportunities for everybody else to get involved, again out of mercifulness. I've seen a lot of you how, you know, you, whatever perikara sometimes you have, you offer to somebody else to go and offer it. So, in those moments, don't think about me or the other person. Think about jati. Your fight is against jati. It's not whether, it's not, you're not trying to be selfless by giving your chance to somebody else. If the chance is still yours to give to somebody else, you're still very selfish thinking. Come out of that. You're just giving a chance for wisdom to fight ignorance. That is what you're doing. Not me being selfless. Because that is also selfish thinking. Make sense? Good. All right. Let's all take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude towards the bhikkhunis and the Bhikkhun, upasakas and upasakas, Bhikkhus and Bhikkhus, Upasakas and Upasakas, let us transfer these maids to them, for it is they who have made immense sacrifices to protect and preserve the sublime teachings of the Buddha and pass it down to the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dharma. Let us transfer the maids we have acquired to all members of the Sangha present throughout the world, including the chief priests of all of the chapters, who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side to the thick and thin come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these maids to my teacher Guru Swami as well as all the monks and, and residents at the monastery and the Anagarika and Nanagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these maids and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha. Be that by transferring these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who, for the sake of merits, to help them attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone, from those of you who provide for the construction of the monastery to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines. May they all rejoice in these merits and by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nimbah. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our employers and employees, and to our teachers, and all those who have made great efforts throughout our lives in Sansara, to make our lives comfortable. May they all rejoice in these merits and by the power of these merits. May they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmettoised deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble laid path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahma spirits and demons, primarily the devas, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who have committed themselves to protect and fulfill the Sasana. Let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities, who people watch for lie over us and keep us out of harm's way. May they all rejoice in these merits and prosper in divine power and wisdom. Let mm-hmm. us also transfer this merits to our ancestors and those who have passed away in our name, our forefathers and those who have predeceased us, to those who have been families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinite long journey of samsara. Let us also transfer this merits to those who, members of the armed forces, as well as members of the police force who sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, as well as those who have lost their lives in the war, be their friend or foe. Let us transfer this merits to those who have lost their lives in natural disasters, such as tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, and so on, reminding ourselves that it's an infinitely long journey of sansara. They will all have been mothers and fathers to us, friends and acquaintances to us. May they all rejoice in these minutes and by the power of these minutes, if any of them have been born in the waffle plains, so they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbā. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, May, by the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success become a Rahatan Mahanse or an Narahateranin Mahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme okay. sadhu, sadhu, Sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.